it'll be useful when we come to this book by way of introduction to speak about the nature of the book of Song of Solomon, which many Christians find difficult. And there are many disagreements about this book. I want to put it as simply as I can. The Song of Solomon is what we call an allegory. It is an extended figure which uses many different images all to combine to speak about something in a poetic way. What I'm saying here is that this book, though many today say it, is not a book of human love poetry. It's not a book of love between a man and a woman, or we can say not a mere man and a mere woman. It's like you're familiar with the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. That is another allegory. To call this book human love poetry would be like calling Pilgrim's Progress a travelogue. Formally, I suppose it is. It's a story about a man on a journey. But we all know that's not the point of the story. This book is an allegory of the love of Jesus Christ and the believer or the believing church. I want to just briefly prove that to you because I know this is difficult for some. First, concerning its place. The Song of Solomon is in the Bible. This should not be forgotten. We already heard from 2 Timothy 3 that the Bible is for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It is hard to see how a mere book of love poetry could contribute to that end, even if it might be lawful and appropriate in another place. It does not reach that great and glorious end that John tells us. The whole Bible, and especially his book, is written, that you may believe, and that by believing have life in Jesus' name. Consider the title of the book. The very first verse of the book tells us it's called the Song of Songs, which is, say, the greatest song of them all. And it's fitting that the book that the scriptures would call the greatest song ever written would have the greatest theme ever written, which is Jesus Christ and his love. It's a supernatural book and it has a supernatural goal. It's obeying what Christ commanded us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's teaching us that even though we appreciate marriage and there are even Psalms praising marriage and family life, Psalm 127, 128, that we are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 29, even if we have wives, to live as if we had none, because the time is short. And though earthly things are a blessing, they're just earthly. They're not heavenly. Think about how this book comes right after Ecclesiastes, in which the whole thrust is that everything under the sun is vanity. It doesn't mean it's sinful, necessarily, but to put our hope on it would be sinful. Third is the content of this book. You're familiar with it, I'm sure, and in it there are extended detailed descriptions of the bride and of the beloved. These descriptions would be odd if they were merely a man speaking to a woman and vice versa. They're better described as a, a free piling on of many different images, drawing on many images that are used throughout the Bible to describe spiritual realities. And this should especially help us understand it when we recognize that, the only, that marriage is not the only image in this book. Yes, it's the main image, but this bride and groom 
Christ and his church, or the church and Christ, also speak of each other as friends. Christ speaks of his bride as his sister, as well as his spouse. More than that, she speaks to him as a king, and he to her as her, as his subject. All of these images are freely woven in because the point is not the images. It's what they're describing. They are describing the relationship between Christ and the church, which though it can be understood by these images, can't be captured by any of them because it's so glorious. We have to use all these pictures. We add to this that in the very beginning of the book and throughout, we have an exchange of number. The bride is spoken of some places as singular, some places as plural. For example, in chapter 1, verse 4, she says, Draw me, singular, and we, plural, will run after thee. Now let me ask you, if this were a book of human love poetry, what conclusion would you draw from that? That there's more than one woman who's to love this man? It borders on the inappropriate, not to mention immoral, to see the book that way. It's fitting, though, to understand it as Christ and his people because each individual believer has a relationship, and so does the whole church with Christ. And so the interchange between singular and plural makes perfect sense under that idea. I could speak much more there, but I hope that's enough to lay the groundwork. Let's come to our text. Verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5. And part of verse 16, he is altogether lovely. This is a believer giving superlative praise to Christ's loveliness. Consider who's speaking. It is a believer. We learn in verse 8 that she is sick of love. This is one who loves Jesus Christ. Given under the image of a woman, a spouse, a bride, but a picture of all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, her audience, who she's speaking to. We heard that she's responding to the question of the daughters of Jerusalem, and she's speaking to them. Jerusalem, in the Bible, is a constant image for the church. This is one true member of the Church of Christ speaking to other members. Perhaps they too are true believing members, perhaps not. At the best, at most certainly we can say she's speaking to the visible church. All the ones gathered around Christ in the church, she's speaking to the daughters in Jerusalem about their king and their head. That third, then, is the subject. It's Christ. She calls him in verse 10, my beloved. And here in verse 16, my beloved and my friend. The one who's not only her Lord, her king, her God, but her friend by grace. Fourth, the description, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. What is she saying about Christ? First, she speaks, well, she's speaking in a word of his loveliness. First, the extent of it, how far it reaches, and that's to everything. If you look, she says, he is altogether lovely. Literally in Hebrew, all of him. All of him. Every single thing about him. In fact, there is nothing about this one that is not lovely. She's speaking as well of the 
excuse me, the degree of that loveliness. How lovely is he? Superlatively so. Indeed, infinitely so. And again, the Hebrew, literal Hebrew, would be strange to our English ears, but it says he, that is, all of him, is lovelinesses. More than one loveliness, the whole package of loveliness, all together in this one. If you look at the previous phrase, his mouth is most sweet. It's the same construction. His mouth is sweetnesses. It's a way in Hebrew of speaking of something that is exalted, great, and grand. He is, we could say, loveliness itself. He is not only lovelinesses, but this word could be translated pleasantnesses or delights. So let's focus then on this. The one who is lovely in every way. All of him is lovely. And he's lovely to the greatest degree. What about this loveliness? What are we to draw out of this to learn about Christ? She's not speaking here of Christ's physical attractiveness according to his human nature. Now, we ought not insult our Lord Jesus Christ, no doubt. As we have a duty to do, he took care of his own body. And he was well kept. But this isn't the thing about Christ that makes believers celebrate him. There was a time in his life, indeed, when we read in Isaiah 52, 14, that his appearance was marred beyond all men. That he was made ugly. But that at that time, the believer sees him as the most lovely of all, because that was when he was dying for the believer's salvation. You see, this is spiritual. This is a spiritual attractiveness that's being talked of. It's an attractiveness that are perceived in the mind. And you see, this can be done even while Christ is, as he is now, far away from us as possible in his body, in heaven. He can be known by the mind in its meditation upon all of his glorious characteristics. But not only the mind, embraced in the heart. Christ ought to be seen, not only seen, but sensed, felt as the loveliest, as altogether lovely. And how is that done? It's not by a natural power. As I said, Christ in his human nature is in heaven. And we ourselves are creatures. But more than that, we're sinners. Any natural ability we had to communicate with God is now gone. And we're cut off from him. This is a power that comes by faith. Faith is the power for our spiritual eyes to see the spiritual loveliness of Christ. And that power is a gift of God. I want to move now to understand from more broadly in the scriptures this loveliness of Jesus Christ. That we, like this bride, might see him in his beauty. In what ways, then, is Christ altogether lovely? Well, we could spend all day, and every day, from here till eternity. It's, in fact, what all the saints are doing now in heaven, and all the saints will do forever, is extolling the endless glory of the Lamb. But for a summary, first, Christ is altogether lovely in his 
deity. In his deity. Christ is a divine person. He is the Son of God. And as a divine person, he has a divine nature. Perhaps better said, he has the divine nature. Because there is only one, and only can be one. We're told this in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. There is the divine person. And the Word was with God. There's his distinction from the Father. And the Word was God. There is his deity that he shares with the Father and the Holy Ghost. And we're told in 1 John 5, verse 7, that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. With the Father and the Spirit, the Son of God is God. He is Jehovah, the great I am that I am. And because of that, we can say and ought to that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is infinitely beautiful, infinitely lovely, infinitely worthy to be beheld. As we've already heard and sung from Psalm 27, verse 4, this is the one thing that a believer seeks is to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple while he dwells there all the days of his life. Consider, for example, a catechism question perhaps familiar to you. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Because Jesus Christ is God, he is all those things. All of that infinite divine glory and all of his attributes, Christ is God. And to connect this to his work for our salvation, because he is infinite God, he was able to offer his human life but it was infinitely precious because it was the life of the person who is God, of the Son of God. And it needed to be infinitely precious because sinners have an infinite guilt, having sinned against an infinitely good God. And so we see in a brief summary, the divine glory of Jesus Christ. And by it, he is altogether lovely. Second, Christ is altogether lovely in his humanity. Because this son of God, who is God, he became the son of man, the son of David, born of a woman. As John says, the word was made flesh. Not only flesh, he had a human soul. Flesh stands for the, a whole human being. Christ became Man, it is lovely, this is glorious in a few ways. One is in the very fact that he took on a human nature. There was no inner necessity or compulsion. 
It's not like becoming man made up for any lack in Christ. He was already infinitely blessed God. Why did he do it? He did it out of love for sinners. He willingly came, and as Paul says in Philippians 2, humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why was he who was rich, why did he who was rich become poor? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, for us, that we by his poverty might be made rich. That itself is worthy of meditation and a clear proof of how lovely this Jesus Christ is, that he was willing, the Son was willing to be made man. But also think of the human nature itself, of its perfection. Now, in a certain sense, it is an amazing thing simply to be man. The human body is marvelous. And all the more marvelous is the human soul. Compare us to all the creatures. And then compare how God has put us in relation to all the creatures. That makes the psalmist praise God in Psalm 8, that he would have given man such a glorious position and given him the ability in his mind and soul to rule over, over all the creatures. There's a sense in which man is, we call it the microcosm, the little world. He's part earth and part heaven in that he's body and soul. He partakes of the nature of the angels and the nature of all the other creatures. And he, as it were, gathers them all up and brings them all in praise to God. This is a marvelous thing. But inasmuch as this does contribute to the glory of Christ, it's not so unique. I mean, all of us are men as well. There's something all the more amazing and completely unique about the human nature of Christ. I don't mean to say that he's not like us in every way. He is. He's like us in every way. Ah, but one exception. Sin. You can read about that in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. And though it's given as an exception there, think for a moment what a great exception that is. Because what has sin done to us? It's unmanned us. Righteousness, knowledge, holiness, these things were the crown of our being. God made man upright, Ecclesiastes says, but we have gone after many inventions. We were like God in the most important way, that is morally, living a righteous life before him. But when Adam fell, that ended. And now the very best thing about us has been taken away. Yes, we still have a reason. We still have a will. We're still above all the creatures in that way. We still have some measure of our old dominion left. But we abuse it now for sin. Christ is not like that at all. Fix this in your mind. He is like us. He's a true man, no question. But he not only never sinned, he could not sin. This is important to lay down. Some otherwise good theologians get this wrong because they do not understand that the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ is the human nature of the Son of God. 
And anything he did in that human nature was an action of the divine word. And the divine word cannot sin, whether in his human nature or in his divine nature. The Son of God can never sin. This is a glory, and it's indeed a great comfort to believers, because if he could have ever sinned, our salvation would have been in jeopardy. He had to be the most perfect, sinless sacrifice for our salvation. And hallelujah, he was. He was. But this is only speaking negatively by saying Christ did not sin or could not sin. Positively, there's more to say, which brings more glory to Christ in his human nature. Because though he had infinite power and glory in his divine nature, he still was finite in his human nature. It's a, it's a human nature. But that finite human nature was filled, so to speak, to the brim with the gifts of the Holy Ghost. He tells us, or rather John the Baptist tells us in John chapter 3, that Christ received the Spirit not by measure. That is to say, not with a limit. Now this is speaking relatively. He can't receive infinite gifts in his finite nature. But the gifts that Jesus Christ received from the Holy Spirit of God were so far above all other men that it's as if they were infinite. We sang of this and heard of it in Psalm 45. So, for example, in verse 2, speaking of Christ, if you want to help for the Song of Solomon, Psalm 45 is like a summary of the Song of Solomon. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. That's a good example, even clearer in verse 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. A sign of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. The oil of gladness above thy fellows. Above all thy fellow men, thou, O Christ, art anointed with the Spirit. And this is why we heard earlier in our chapter that my beloved is white and ruddy. We can interpret that as pure and healthy. The chiefest among 10,000. Bring me 10,000 other men, 10,000 more, 100,000. You'll not find one like him. And that's not because he's not a man like us. But it's because he stands out as the, not only the sinless man, but the one anointed by the Holy Ghost above all others. It's marvelous. We've heard then that Christ is altogether lovely in his deity and in his humanity. But they come together when we consider that he is altogether lovely as well in his works. His works that he has done according to both of his natures. Consider the works in particular of his divine nature. The Lord Jesus Christ, before he even took the name, the Lord Jesus Christ, before anything else was made, he, as God, spoke the creation into his existence. The Father created all things through and by the Word. As John tells us in chapter 1, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Every single creature. A help to you is that we hear the same thing from Paul in Colossians chapter 1. 
Now, you may have occasion to speak to people, Jehovah's Witnesses and others, who deny that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. And they, in their devilish lying, will bring the Bible to witness to their errors and say, verse 15, who, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And then they say, oh, look, he's firstborn. He was born like all the other creatures. No, we don't deny that Christ was born. He was begotten, that is, before all worlds. But he was begotten without a beginning. He was begotten of the Father. And we heard testimony of that in Hebrews 1. But firstborn here is in particular a sign of preeminence. Like a firstborn in the family, so Christ in the family of the world, he's above them all. But what it doesn't mean is very clear in the next verse. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that is, the angelic beings who are the greatest of all. All things were created by him and for him. How can that be said of one who is not God? The work of creation is a work of infinite power. You cannot do an infinite work with a finite instrument. For God to create the world through his Son proves that the Son is God. So after that aside, think of how this helps us understand the loveliness of Christ. Because now, every single creature on this earth is a testimony to it. The moon, the sun, the stars, the clouds, man in all his glory, in all his great number, all the animals, all the plants, the seas, the land, all nations, everything, all the things we do see, all the things we don't see, things that are too small or too great to see, he made every single one of them. And I ask you, does the creation not often fill you with awe and wonder? And make you stop and say, that's lovely. If the creation is lovely, how much more lovely is the creator? Shouldn't this make you stop and say, he is altogether lovely. This should be a great help to the Christian. You go around in this world and every single thing you see was made by your Jesus Christ. Wow. Add to that this work of providence, which we can call continued creation, because the world that he made, he continues to make and remake and hold up. We heard that in Hebrews 3, that he, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. So not only did they exist, but they do exist because of him. So not only all the world, but all the history of all the world is the work of Jesus Christ, the rise and fall of kingdoms and all things. He's doing it. He said in the days of his flesh, my father worketh hitherto and I do work. That is to say, from the very beginning, we've never stopped working. We're always upholding this universe. So all the works of all things in this world are works of the Son of God. That should give you every reason to see that he is altogether lovely. But these things, in a certain sense, pale in comparison to the subset of his works of providence that directly concern our salvation, which are far and above the greatest works of all. That this Son of God, 
in both of his natures, each doing their own part, came, lived, taught, died under the wrath of God to satisfy for the guilt of all of the elect. He rose again from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he is there in his flesh interceding for all his people before the Father in heaven. And that only regards the accomplishment of salvation. For it to be applied, he sent his Holy Spirit so that it would not only be that Jesus Christ is altogether lovely, but that that confession then would be in the mouths of his people, even as we read in our text. So that sinners who were lost and dead and enemies of God might turn and now say he is altogether lovely. And more than that, by the power of Christ, they in their own way become altogether lovely. Our chapter 5 is about Christ, but chapter 4 is about his people. And he says much the same of them as they say of him. Verse 7, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Looking on his people in his own righteousness, which he's given them through faith in their justification, so that it's as if before him and the Father they had never sinned. But also in their sanctification, how he's changed them. They now have a sincere and pure heart, not sinless, not till glory, but sincere. And that pleases him. And we, in a small way, share in some of the loveliness of Christ by his work in us. I trust you see now how this is just a sketch. This is just the beginning. Just some hints, really, of the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's enough for us to make good applications. So I bring you three applications. One is that of examination. You need to examine yourself in regard to what you've now learned. Christ is altogether lovely in himself. We've seen that proven from the scriptures. Is he altogether lovely to you? Do you see the difference there? Christ will continue being altogether lovely whether any man recognizes it or not. But what matters for you and your salvation is that you recognize it. That he is altogether lovely in your eyes. There are two ways in which this may be. One is in your intellect, your understanding, your mind. I ask you, do you confess with knowledge that Jesus Christ is lovely? Think about this in light of that familiar text. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord is a good summary of his loveliness, is it not? You are to make that profession if you are to be saved. You have to believe it and you have to acknowledge it with your mouth. All of these doctrines we've heard, how he's lovely in his deity, how he is lovely in his humanity, how he's lovely in his works of creation and providence and especially of salvation. Do you agree with what the Bible says on those things? Do you say, yes, yes, Jesus Christ 
is lovely in all those ways and many more. It's as if Christ today in the preaching of the word is coming and asking, not just as he did to the the disciples in Matthew 16, whom do men say that I am? And you could say, well, they say you're altogether lovely, and that'd be true. But it's as if, as he did to them, he turns now to each one of you and says, but whom do you say that I am? Do you agree with them that I'm a prophet, that I'm Christ? And what is your answer? Is it to say with Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God? To say with the bride, thou art altogether lovely. But also in your intellect, do you not only confess it, but behold it. You see how this takes us another degree. We read and sung in Psalm 27, 4, that the aim of a Christian is to behold the beauty of the Lord. This means not only to recognize it, but to meditate upon it, to make it the fruit, the enjoyment, the content of your continual thoughts. Think about how Psalm 1 says that the blessed man meditates on God's law day and night. It's like he's a cow and constantly chewing the cud of this content of the word of God. And what is the center of the content of the word of God? It's Christ. Christ. He is the jewel of scripture. He is the center of all these things. Is he therefore the center of your thoughts? Do you not only say, yes, he's lovely, but do you think about him as a bride, as a wife who loves her husband with joy will think about his good qualities? Is this true for you? But that brings us then from our intellect next to our affections, which cannot be separated, though they are distinct. Because we're not just to confess and not just to behold Christ's loveliness, but we're required to love his loveliness, to take delight in his delightfulness. This is the only proper response. And be sure, there is no salvation without it. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema, accursed. Send him to hell. And the Lord will answer that prayer of the Apostle. There is no one in heaven or who will be in heaven who did not on this earth first love Jesus Christ. First have in his own heart an echo, a response to that loveliness that is in him. Does his loveliness stir up your love? You need to ask this honestly about your soul. Now, I want you not to misunderstand. The true Christian will often respond, well, I know I don't love him as I ought. And they'll complain of their lack of love. But you shouldn't see that in itself as a necessary proof that you don't love Christ. In fact, a sadness about the lack of love is itself a proof of love. The unbeliever doesn't care that he doesn't love Christ. It's not a concern for him. 
That's not to say you ought not love him more, but you ought not be unduly distressed. Your goal then is to seek to love him more. But nonetheless, the question still comes to you. Do you love him? Again, in the words of Jesus Christ, remember when he came to reconcile Peter who had forsaken him. And he says to them, lovest thou me? He asked him three times. And Christ, as it were, is asking you repeatedly in the sermon, lovest thou me? Peter could give the answer. In fact, he would be lying if he didn't say the truth. Lord, thou knowest. Thou knowest I love thee. Can you say that with complete sincerity to Christ? Even with all the failures of your love, can you say that to him? That is the question of salvation. It's the question of eternal life and death. It's the most important question you can ask yourself. Do you love this lovely Christ? Second, then, having asked that question, a right response is humiliation. These truths should bring us low for three causes, and they're based on the examination we've already done. The first is unbelief. If you, under such an examination, recognize you have no love for the Lord Jesus Christ, this should humble you to the very dust. Because if Christ is indeed as lovely as the Scripture says He is, and as Christians say it is, why don't you see it? It's not because of any lack in Him. Be sure of that. It's because you're blind. It's because you cannot see. And why are you blind? Why do your eyes, they might be there, but they have no power? It's because you have no faith. Faith is, we can say in one way, the power to see Christ. The God-given power to see the Son of God in all His loveliness and to respond appropriately to Him by embracing Him. If you haven't done that, then you can't see. What does Christ say to you then, if that is you? He says, as he says to the church in Laodicea, that you ought then to buy eye salve from him and anoint your eyes with it from him that you may see. You need to ask with that blind man in Luke 18, when he says, what would you have me do? He says, Lord, that I may receive my sight. That's what you must do in coming to Christ. But it's also humiliating for us because of our sin. We've heard all about the loveliness of Christ. Do you remember the great contrast that we've already spoken of? How he is the cheapest among 10,000 and there's none like him? Because everyone else has sinned. We are not only able to sin, unlike him, we actually do sin, unlike him. And not only do we sin with particular acts, we sin because we have a sinful nature. And that nature came from Adam. And when he sinned, we also fell in him. And so we have a threefold sinfulness in Adam, in our nature, in our actions, which makes us utterly unlike Christ. This should bring us also very low. We've seen how Christians, by faith and by the renewing grace of God, are in their own way altogether lovely. There is no spot in thee, Christ says. But even so, it's true of them that all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is no man, believer or not, that liveth and sinneth not. In many things we offend all, James says. And the Christian, better than anyone else knows, the reason he sins is because he still has a remnant of that sinful nature. And unless a man believes in Christ and has been changed by the Holy Spirit, it's not a remnant. It's his nature. That's all there is. He is dead in sins and trespasses. Hear this. This is you by nature. And if you're not in Christ, it's still you. You are not altogether lovely. You are, in fact, altogether ugly. Christ himself testifies against you in this. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Do you recognize this about yourself? You ought to, in contrast with the altogether lovely Christ. Third then, and especially to believers, you ought to be humbled by your lack of love. Have you not seen that he is altogether worthy of altogether much more love than you have ever given him? Should you not love him far more than you do? Every honest Christian ought to say yes, and that should bring us low. But then third and finally, it should bring us to love him more, which he is willing to work in us. We ought to love him who is altogether lovely. And how may we do it? Well, it's the same as we, I exhorted those who were spiritually blind. You need to come to Christ to be able to see. Maybe you do see, but you need to see better. You need him who gave you the grace to see, to continually fix your eyes, to be able to behold more of his beauty. And then in faith, you ought to then come and use the means that are given to and for faith. A chief one would be study of his word. Because scripture is the book of Christ. As you've seen, that's where I drew all of the evidence for his loveliness. If you want to go here, it's as if Christ is given to you in a beautiful portrait with all sorts of detail. He's painted for you in this book, painted not to your physical eyes, which would break the second commandment, but to the eyes of your mind, that your faith might receive knowledge of him in the word. And you ought then to go there and to come to the Bible with the commitment of Paul. I have desired to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Come to your Bible to find Christ and don't leave your Bible until you have found him and seen and embraced him whom your soul has loved in the words of Song of Solomon. Come to him and say with those Greeks in John 12, Sir, we would see Jesus. And as a special help, we can say even in the scriptures, the help of helps is in the Song of Songs. Perhaps this book is strange to you. Perhaps you've not read it before. Perhaps in reading it, you've really not understood it. 
The Song of Psalms is a, songs is a book for mature Christians. It's, it's difficult. But it's also a book that makes mature Christians. And I encourage you to read it to that end. And to read it over and over. And let especially the praises of Christ that are found there sink into you. That they might, by the grace of God, come out of you in due time. And again, I recommend as a good summary of this book, Psalm 45, which is a hymn of love to Jesus Christ. For your meditation, it would give great help in growing in love for him. And then third and finally, to love Christ more, proclaim him and his loveliness. That's indeed what is happening in our text. She's speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. And you have a duty then, especially within the visible church, within all the other daughters of Jerusalem, and within this local church particularly, to turn to each other and say, He is altogether lovely. To speak to one another of Christ's graces, of Christ's glory, of His deity, of His humanity, and all, of all His works. It should be a frequent theme of your conversations, especially on the Lord's Day. And then, of course, outside the church, proclaiming His loveliness to all men so that some, according to Christ's grace, might see Him. In this way, you stir up yourself and others with you to love Him who is altogether lovely. May the Lord bless us.